0: So we are living in pandemic times and it's December and I know a lot of my friends also use grocery pickup or the pickup function with other stores Um, and it's also the holiday season for a lot of people and a lot of us also have either kids or other family members that we take care of. And so, an easier way that you can get the things that you need, but without having to even pick them up, is to use Instacart. What's cool is that they can deliver in as little as one hour, and there's a variety of different kinds of stores. And if you go to the show notes of this episode, you can use that link to have a free pickup or delivery and it also supports this show so if you're interested please check it out and enjoy the next episode of painting in motion podcast where we do one-on-one interviews with artists of different backgrounds and disciplines and while talking about their current work we often explore the works that have influenced them and we highlight a particular artwork as well as a film that has influenced them that has been made by another artist And today's artist, I'm so excited to share because anytime I read about the work that she's done in an article, or if I've listened to or read an interview with her, I'm always left feeling so excited and also have learned so much from her. Our guest this week is Elena Kanegi-Lauks. She is the collection specialist at the Textile Center within the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is one of the largest museums in the world, and I believe the largest museum in New York City. I love New York, and personally, it's my favorite city. And, of course, that means I love the Met, and... I have so many amazing memories of visiting galleries and museums in different cities, but there's something really unique and special about being in New York City and experiencing art there. And Elena has been a resident of New York for over a dozen years now, but has had such a fascinating journey that's led up to the work that she does now. And In this episode, you're going to learn a bit about her background and her childhood and the fact that she was influenced by super incredible worlds, places like Japan and places within America that seem very different. But when you look at the art that Elena has made, because she's also an artist, um, I can really see the influences start to meld together. Um, in addition to being an incredibly brilliant historian, and I mean detailed, like to the year, she will tell you such incredible stories that are, of course, historical, so they're true, but the way that Elena shares them, they're, it, it feels like people that you can associate with in real life today. Um and so I love that about her work. And in addition to being a historian, she is also a lace maker and an artist in her own right. Um her particular specialty is bobbin lace making, but there is a huge world within lace that I had no idea about. And when I stumbled upon her work, um It was through a project that I was lucky to happen upon and take part of, um, that Elena created. It was a prompt that she made and there was a group of us that responded to this prompt and within that we learned a little bit about her and that led me to finding her in social media. Um since finding her on Instagram, she created a TikTok and I know a lot of my friends a lot of my personal like closest friends don't have a TikTok account but I super urge you to pause this podcast to go on TikTok and let me make sure that I spell her handle right. Um what she's done is so cool and so unique. Um Basically, there's a world called Lace Talk, and if you look at her account on there, you will learn so much, especially through her series called Beyond the Veil. And in this series, you'll learn about spooky, often murderous stories that have to do with lace, which sounds unusual, and it is, and it's so cool. Um, Her username is at... E-R-E-N-A-N-A-O-M-I. So it's Arena Naomi. it's um, her handle on there. So I super, super recommend that you do that. It doesn't mean you have to make any TikToks, but it doesn't mean you have to even follow anybody else. But you really need to follow her. Um, she's made all kinds of things for, for people that are super unique, whether it's... Being the exclusive costume designer for Courtney Love, to making the 25th anniversary collar for being Supreme Court Justice in honor of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So the RBG has worn Elena's work, which is so cool. And she's she's done a lot to give back to the community and to teach about lace making. Uh, She's founded the Brooklyn Lace Guild and teaches classes in New York City. So I know my friends that live in New York, if you're able or have the time to take a class from her, I would totally do it. I think she offers classes that are online as well, so you don't have to be based in New York. Um, So I'll be sure to add some links in the show notes so you can find more information about what Elena does and more about her work and I hope you enjoy this episode wanted to mention, I, I love the uh, most recent um, Metropolitan Museum um, video clip that you're in, and you're talking about some history to do with bustles. Um, I didn't realize that the fact that people would sometimes hide things, including lace, within them. So I'm wearing some hidden lace under my outfit. Oh, it's the nice. first time I've dressed up for a podcast. Um, I also have my Vivian Westwood booties because I feel like I needed <sighs> to channel. Because I love, um, I love your style. Um, Thank you so
1: much. That's yeah. I love that. I funny enough, I'm wearing my glam loungewear oh, wow. i just hang out in my vintage pajamas and bunny slippers
0: <laughs> i love the slippers and that works <laughs> my for, work um, from home
1: attire
0: <laughs> well and it's it's glam and i feel like glam attire can sometimes or even more often than not feel more um comfortable like it's more luxurious in the fabrics there's just something about the slinkiness of it um, and the rabbits are perfect for your movie pick that we'll talk <laughs> about later, too. Yeah. So thank definitely. you. Um, so, I guess I want to ask first um, for our listeners I'd love if you could share um, your title at the Met Museum at the Textile Center and what your specific tasks are, because um, I know your title, but I'm not quite sure myself what exactly you get to do. And I know that you're an art historian and an artist yourself, um, but what is, exactly is your role and what are some of the more um, details you can share about it?
1: Sure, yeah. So um, at The Met, I am the, I work in the, Ratti, the Antonio Rati Textile Center which is the study and storage facility for the METS collection of 33,000 textiles from 12 curatorial departments spanning 5,000 years of history. So we are not ourselves a curatorial department, but we um, store many of the textiles in the institution. And we also provide access to textiles in the institution. So for um, oftentimes for classes, student groups, Um, researchers, historians, and also hobbyists and people who are just interested in textiles. So um, my primary responsibility during normal times, not during COVID times, is to supervise viewings of textiles in our collection. So textiles are very light sensitive and fragile, and they can't be on view for long periods of time in the galleries. Some things are too fragile, in fact, to um, go on view at all. and so if people need to access them for their research or for their interests, um, they can schedule an appointment to view things at the Antonio Ratti Textile Center, um, which is unfortunately closed right now, but it will be open again, hopefully next year. Um, and so my job is to sit in on the viewings with our visitors um, and serve as sort of the eyes and hands for um, Visitors to the institution. So I turn things over for people. I can handle them for people. I can, you know, try to answer questions to the best of my ability. Um, obviously, visitors aren't allowed to touch accessioned art in the museum. So that's that's sort of my role uh, in the institution. Yeah.
0: Right, and I. I knew there was a a very big span, um, both of time and just in the amount of objects that are housed there. But I didn't realize quite how large it was. But you said it was 33,000 around. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, And what I love is um, I've listened to a few uh, or read a few interviews where you've talked about the importance of. Um, history with objects being handmade, and I feel like a lot of people who also like to collect things or own things um, for personal reasons because of the histories of who it belonged to um, can be a big reason of why people might shop vintage or might own antiques, but there's such a deeper level when it comes to something that is handmade on top of that and the time that goes into it. And I was introduced to your work fairly recently through the Muses Escape project. And I loved the project that you came up with. And for people not familiar, um, I believe they pick different artists periodically to kind of create a prompt that's very unique where community members get to respond to and later critique. Um, And I love the way that you presented that project and the way that you talked about honoring people and honoring um, artists who make fiber work. Um, So could you talk, I guess, a little bit about the importance of the the makers behind all these textiles, um, both at the museum, but maybe just your personal objects too. Um, Is that something that you think about when you're wearing your clothing or what kind of ways does that kind of um, infiltrate the way that you think or um, work with these art materials?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously my background is actually as a maker and I worked in Um, fashion design for many years as well as getting a degree in textile design before I shifted gears into a more historical focus for my career. Um, So I always approach things as a maker. I always think about things as a maker and you know whether it's a historic or modern textile um, having that experience in making something with your own hands really informs so much about the value of the object and the time that went into it and it really just it shifts your perspective on looking at the world and on valuing objects so it's something that i'm i feel really strongly and deeply about is is this sort of you know in this push in the global fashion industry to towards sustainability that um i think part of the reasons why there's some disconnect with Um, Of course, there's the financial portion where clothing is very expensive. And so people out of need end up buying fast fashion. But I think there's also sort of a a disconnect in understanding how things are made and appreciating the value of that. And so, um, you know, I obviously I have the, the privilege to choose to shop sustainably and buy a lot of vintage and that sort of thing. But I feel really connected to those objects. And it's, it's, it 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 just means something different to me, and in fact, as a lace maker myself in my own work um when I'm sitting at my lace pillow i I feel like i'm embodying i'm embodying centuries of history of predominantly women makers um, who have been mostly written out of history i mean their work has been overlooked and undervalued for so long, and people don't realize how important and impactful the textile industry and history has been on the world in, in terms of technology and, and all sorts of things. Luckily this is changing and there's a lot more appreciation and value for these sorts of things in recent years, which is fantastic. And I love it. But, um, you know, it's when, when these, particularly when these like women lacemaker stories are lost, one of the ways that we can learn about their lives is to spend time kind of in their shoes. So, you know not that i work <laughs> in a in a dim damp basement for 15 hours a day making lace i'm i'm fortunate to have come to this as a hobbyist who is not forced to do this as my profession but you know at least i i can embody these motions and when i examine a piece of handmade lace i can appreciate oh my gosh you know this much 1 inch of this lace would have taken me this many hours to just to complete. So I, I can really appreciate, wow, how much work and skill went into things that I look at. Um, so I really think that is such an important thing in, in right. all aspects of my life.
0: And I, I feel like too, um, I, I have colleagues and um, friends or acquaintances who are historians, but I feel like at least personally, it's rare to find a historian who also practices or at least, has spent a lot of time on developing the same skills that they're studying. And so I can only imagine um, what that must feel like to know not only the, the technical part of it, but to know the history of the setting or the place and time, the kind of um, place or context within that. I feel like that's a really unique thing that you do. Um, and I know that there's lots of people who, like me who might have found you more recently who are just kind of blown away because you're, you seem so prolific and you're also so great at sharing your knowledge and being very open about, um, resources and things that people can do to learn more. And I feel like some artists sometimes struggle with that or they're afraid to, to, to give away technique or something, which always, I don't understand that. But, um, I guess what I, what I love is that you're very empowering and, um, There's something that's important about self-expression through fibers, too. And I guess, uh, what kind of people did you look uh, towards when you were kind of forming your own um, ways as an artist, but also your own way of expressing yourself visually? Because um, so I know there's people that are looking up to you, this through it comments, I'll see people that are like, I want to dress like that, or <laughs> I want to dress like this certain way and I can't because of work, but they can do it on the weekend or maybe some other time. And I feel like seeing people like you gives them that confidence to be like, I can do what I want to do when I'm able to. Um, but do you right. have role models that you looked up to or still look up to
1: you know, that's a that's such a great question. Um, I, f- I feel like first of all, thank you so much. I I really making information about textiles and the things that I'm interested in accessible to a broader audience is absolutely the foundation of everything that I do. And, and I have encountered struggles in certain areas to access this information. In many cases, it took me a number of years to find um, an instructor in my area that I could learn lace-making techniques from. And while it's not always intentional, they, these can be really closed sort of communities to break into um, or that are difficult to access. So that's why I've taken everything online onto social media, specifically because I want so- anyone out there who is interested in learning about these things to be able to find them and to have resources for that. Um, that's It's so important to me. Um, you know, history... History to so many kids, I think, in school seems like such a boring topic, um, but it's not. It's so it's fascinating. It's thrilling. It's rich. It's heartbreaking. It's horrible. It's amazing. It, it, it's the story of, you know, of all of us and how we are here today. And it's so important for us to examine continually our history and re-examine it. Um And I think the problem is that it's sometimes just not packaged in an interesting way. So my goal is to give these bite-sized tidbits of information, you know, on social media, on Instagram or on TikTok, and, and to jazz it up a little bit um, because I know that it's interesting and that people will find it that way. And, and yeah, so it's, it's, that's been really exciting to be able to share that. But as far as people that I look up to, I mean, in my career, I've had, some absolutely wonderful mentors that have been invaluable both in in the institution at the Met and outside. Um, But as an artist, that's that's such a great question. Um, I feel like my first um, foray into the art world and the people that I looked up to were the handmakers in the Amish and Mennonite community that my grandparents on both sides come from. Um, and I grew up kind of with a needle and thread in hand, learning how to embroider. And that was just what girls did. And, you know, really embroidery skills are so important for fine motor skills. Everyone should learn how to sew and embroider. It's just, it's just a good skill to have. Um, and I, I looked up to the women around me in my family in my community who were very self-sustaining in this way. They produced a lot of the things that they needed and didn't necessarily even rely on things like electricity or, you know, all these things that I have fully embraced, clearly. Um, And then additionally, um, I always go back to my childhood because I feel like it was so formative for me, and it explains a lot about how I got to be this person. But um, I also lived for a time in Tokyo. My mom was born there and grew up there, and my grandparents were missionaries to Japan in the 50s. Um, They were not missionaries any longer when I lived there, um, nor was my mom. But She continued to live there as an adult with me and my family and um, had a job in Tokyo during my junior high and high school years. So I was there back and forth from the U.S. And just the sort of the whole fashion scene of people that, as you say, um, were not able to dress how they wanted during the week because we all had uniforms in school. I went to public school, too, and I had uniforms. So we had this sort of, and at the time, actually, we went to school six days a week. So Sunday was your only day off. They, they abolished this, of course, the year after I graduated. No. <laughs> so, or something like that. It was like right, right after I left, um, they, they made it a five-day week, which is a relief because six days of school that's is just too much. That's too much. Yeah. No. <laughs> but, um, so really, that's why this fashion scene in Harajuku that so many people are familiar with across the pond and beyond, um, that's how it evolved is that all these kids kind of with pent-up Fashion energy um, had to get it all out in one go on on Sundays and dress up, and, and it was not reliant at all on like having money or access to brands or you know. Now things have changed a bit for sure, but at the time, you know, in the late '90s, early 2000s, it was it was way more about your individual creativity and what you could do with whatever you had lying around. So it was it was very accessible and really um, a great form of self-expression so that was a huge influence on me and then creatively oh my gosh it's there's been so many artists I the, the the fiber art and textile art community and world has just been exploding in recent years which is so great and so timely and um overdue long overdue um some of the artists that I find to be incredible inspirations in my life include um, Rosie Lee Tompkins who's a uh, quilt maker, a black American quilt maker who um, repurposes a lot of um, vintage and antique kind of home linens and textiles like doilies and handkerchiefs and tea towels many of which are in their own right small handmade works of art um right. but she sort of takes all these different women's voices stitched into fabric and compiles them into these incredible compositions of colorful vibrant gorgeous quilts and she makes them into a symphony i mean it's it's really incredible so um her work is as a big is a big influence to me. And then um, so another artist I think that um, was the primary focus of my answer for this podcast is the artist uh, Yinka Shonibare, who um, I actually came across him in, um, gosh, 2009, I think when he had a retrospective at the Brooklyn museum oh, wow. and he's a, Nigerian British artist who works in a variety of medium but main, mainly like three-dimensional sculpture of figure life-size figures um, and the particular work that struck me um, in this exhibition and it's now at the Tate in London on permanent display I believe so if anyone's in London they can go see it um, is called The Swing um, which is based on Fragonard painting that is just, again, from the Rococo period, which is another huge aesthetic influence for me. So it's kind of compounding all these different interests. Um, Sorry, I hope I didn't get too far ahead of myself. No, you're good. No,
0: that's perfect. (laughs) And um, we could go ahead and talk about that because um, I I was familiar with his work on a surface level. Um, I've only seen one piece of his in person but i can only imagine um, a retrospective because his work is its installation and it's figurative but it's something that's also very cinematic and um i was reading a little bit more about the swing specifically because there's a lot of symbolism particularly with the fibers and with the type of fabric and it makes sense that you chose it because it's it's so complex and it's so tied to identity and i think it's so important um and also i think i saw a picture of you maybe recreating or referencing the swing yourself or maybe there's a portrait where you had some kind of a floral um swing set i think i saw um but i would love to hear your thoughts on why that piece specifically um, and maybe why it stands out to you from his other works
1: yeah yeah absolutely that photo was from um my friend Bodie styled me after the Fragonard swing um image specifically for a shoot a number of years ago gosh it was probably like five years ago now um which was so much fun just to get dressed up and swing around um in her giant loft space (laughs) photography studio um but yeah that that piece really it speaks to me on so many different levels and for so many different reasons i think for the most part because it it just it so powerfully encompasses this whole global and colonial intertwined history of textiles and of humanity i mean it there's so many layers to unpack with it um, with all of his work that is, it really tells an incredibly powerful story and makes you think um, all at once. Um, Yeah. The textiles that you're referencing that he uses often in his work are commonly called or referred to as African wax, wax prints or also Dutch wax prints, which are sort of an imitation of Indonesian batik textiles, which is like a wax resist technique for creating pattern that was that is very traditional and widespread in in Indonesia and essentially these these textiles have such an interesting story that's true I mean in my opinion with all different kinds of textiles it's such like a global story but essentially um the Dutch East India Company in the in the 17th and 18th century um wanted to copy the sort of Indonesian boutique textiles and sell them back to the Indonesians, which is something that they did with um, a lot of different kinds of textiles, like, like Indian printed cottons, block printed cop- cottons were really renowned during that period for being color fast as well. There's just so much history there. Um, and, you know, the Europeans saw <laughs> people in Asia doing this incredible textile work and they wanted to try to do it themselves. But when they took their versions back to the Indonesian market, people were like, yeah, this doesn't. You know, they they were really more interested in their own traditional textiles, right. which is completely understandable. They the, the, the Dutch East, East, East India Company version was, um, I think it had cracks in the wax or something like that in the printing technique, and they they didn't they didn't like it aesthetically. But it's this very colorful and vibrant narrative type of printed cotton. Um, but then they decided to take it to um, Western Africa. Um, and it was very popular there. And now it has become this seen as this sort of, you know, obviously, Africa is a large and diverse continent, but it's become sort of this pan African textile. Um, and it has this really, really in depth, complicated history. Obviously, Dutch East India Company were involved in horrific colonization, you know, it's, it, it's, as with all textile history, it's so complicated, but um that's why this work of art is so powerful because it brings up all of these issues in this history um so so beautifully uh
0: and the the headless quality which comes up with his work a lot too um i didn't realize until the seeing this piece, how political it was, with the the connection between the rococo type of clothing, and then the the aristocracy of people being um, sent to the guillotine, and there's almost a violence to his piece, even though it still has its romantic quality too. Um, so I, I love that because it it's he's so um, honest and he's so um, visceral with his work. He's able to really kind of create a scene that's so, um, evocative of both present time and the times that he's referencing to at the same time. Um, but I don't know. And and I feel like with your work too, um, you're, you're very vocal and so far everyone I've been interviewing has been, um, very active with social activism and with, um, Doing what they can to just talk about things and to give back to important um, organizations and protesting. Um, So, I guess could you talk about the importance of protest, maybe both in the work that you look up to, but also in your own presence that you have online?
1: Well, I will say that you know any any amount that I've done or participated in never feels like enough, nor should it. You know, there's there's no um, there's no perfect way to to do this or to to participate and call yourself an ally. It's it's an ongoing process. So I don't I don't refer to myself that way or think of myself as particularly an, an activist or anything. It's just things that I care about and that it's in, in intrinsic to existing in the world and caring about other people. I mean it, it's it to me it's so basic. It's like I don't want to see other human beings suffer at the hand of, you know, a, a group that perhaps like a demographic that I'm part of in this country, you know, as, as a white American person, it's very complicated. Um, so yeah, that's, that's such a great question. I, I definitely am drawn to works that have that inherent, um, sort of political power and strength to them. Although, um, Yeah, I'm not, you know, that's, that's such a tough question, actually, because I don't think of my own work in that way, but at the same time, advocating for this historical technique um, that was predominantly done by women um, and that has been traditionally undervalued and left out of the art historical canon is, is in its own way, a form of activism, because I am really passionate about um, people's voices not being spoken over and, everyone's stories being told and not just having the sort of 18th century European white male painters of the world represented as much as I love them too. It's just, there's room for everyone. And so I think just wanting to listen and wanting to make sure that these underrepresented voices are heard. That's, that's really important, but yeah.
0: (laughs) I agree. It's, I feel like it's something that, um, that it, it's it should be basic, and it should be something that we at least think about or talk about every day. And it's it's hard to pinpoint um, like what helps and what doesn't. I I know this again through your videos, um, even on TikTok. It's it's powerful because something like the Harry Styles cover, and the fact that that was something that is still controversial blows my mind, but I love that you were able to discuss it again from a historical perspective um, and to, to talk about something like that makes such a difference. Um, I have a son who loves to wear, or he used to wear lots of um glittery things. and He oh, had like, a, a glittery Minnie Mouse it. t-shirt that he loved. And there was a boy at school who was repeating things that he heard from home and he didn't wear it after that in public. He only wears it at home. Um, and Harry Styles, in particular, I have a friend who has a son who dresses very femme, and he he's super into. He's. I'll have to show him your stuff because he's he has his own uh, sewing machine. I believe he's nine, um, eight or nine, but he's already making his own clothing, oh. and he does um head to toe complete accessorized ensembles. Um, and these are just. Some examples of people who are super young, who are playing with their identity, or might even already have a strong sense of who they want to be or who they already are. And again, to see an example of someone who is talking about it and who is giving that empowerment by by setting that example is really um, it's it's really important. So I think it does a lot. And it's it's hard when you're the person, I think, making it and to know, like, what other reactions are sometimes. Um, But I I love that about your videos. I also love um, your Beyond the Veil series. It's so cool. And it's so cool that you're taking lace and you're talking about it in this context that's more, um, it's it's very narrative and you have this ongoing theme with it. Um, So could you talk about, I guess, why you chose um, the themes that you deal with, I believe they're all um, kind of murder mysteries or kind of more scandalous views into lace. Um, but how would you describe the way you arrived at that series?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, g- just to go back to the Men in Lace video that I did, I what's funny is, I I guess I'm a little bit out of touch with pop culture sometimes. I hadn't actually seen the Harry Styles cover when I made that video. Um, I didn't see it until the Candace Owens unfortunate negative response to it and backlash, and I had already made the video and posted it before I had seen that, which, so it's, it's, it is, it's true. That is so important to me in terms of looking at history because the more you examine you know the history of clothing not only does it tell you about um you know global trade and technology and colonization and all this really important history of of the world but but also about the constructions of gender i mean if you look if you study fashion history it, it becomes so obvious so immediately that that uh, you know, the the sort of ideas of masculine versus feminine clothing are totally ab- arbitrary. Even within just European fashion history, not to mention, you know, on the global stage even today, where men around the world wear all different types of clothing. Like, there's no reason that that pants should be masculine. It, it it's totally arbitrary and invented by society. So, I really do strongly advocate for not only like women makers of lace, but also that lace is for everyone. And same goes for all. Textiles um, and and all clothing and and everything that these are not gendered activities um, or expressions. You know that it's 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 totally arbitrary, and in in five hundred years, everything we wear will mean something completely different. So it, it's it's always changing. Um, but for the Beyond the Veil series, um, I I you know of course I like many of us was sort of a, a goth teenager who liked to hang out in cemeteries and, or, you know, yes a, and, and I was interested in the the macabre and definitely like sort of murder mysteries. Um, I'm a big fan of them on like BBC murder mysteries, for example. So I really love sort of spooky history. And when I joined TikTok, some of my favorite accounts were these, um, these accounts that highlighted, um, different spooky stories in history um gosh now i'm blanking on names uh, one quarter Fay who talks about um gravestones and uh beyond the not beyond the coffin oh my gosh why can't i think of her username There's, there are so many creators so many. they're great and now i have to like um look them up to, yeah. to not get their handles wrong but but Anyway i was I just really enjoyed those stories so much, and I'd actually previously given a lecture um, at a bar in Brooklyn called the House of Wax, which is also a very spooky theme and and really macabre and interesting that it's owned by some friends of mine or co-owned or something um, not sure exactly, but um, they they had me teach a Bob and lace class there, and I also followed it with a lecture called Lace and Death where I just I had collected all these stories through history that um, examined the intersection of lace and death. You know, a lot of people immediately think of mourning, Victorian mourning, like hair jewelry and like black lace veils and this sort of thing. But there's actually a there's actually a whole lot more beyond it, like the smuggling not only in bustles, but also in coffins. And, you know, people are really, really interested in lace to the degree that they would dig it out of graves. You know, it's, it's hard for us to imagine now that something would be that valuable that people would, you know, practically die for it. it, it it's, it was just really valued in such a different way. So I just, I knew that those stories were so fascinating to me. And I, I thought that they would resonate with my audience as well, which they have, yes, which is they totally so fun. Have. I,
0: I, it, you've I only just joined. Hope I never run out. <laughs> yes, well, and you've only joined. I think recently, um, and so it's again, it's amazing because I feel like it. Whether it's creative people or just people like um, I follow people who shared different kinds of like science lessons, or there's lots of fashion historians on there. Um, but there's something that you're doing that's so unique and again you're adding you're, you're adding a context that's narrative and the fact that they're true stories too. Um there's just so many elements of it that are really cool and you're also preserving these stories. These are things that people wouldn't have probably come across otherwise. So I think it's it's so cool, but it's also important too. Um, so I really love it and I guess I, I would love to talk a little bit about your actual work. And I, I know that as a historian and as someone that works at one of the largest museums of the world or at a center within, um, something like lace, I know, is so time consuming, but you still manage to make things. Um, and you made something for. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg which is so amazing and I read that she wrote like a a thank you note and described that like when she was going to wear it and it was it was so cool to read about um and our listeners can read more about this I believe it's in Vogue they posted an article or Teen Vogue Teen Vogue yeah that's right Mm -hmm. um so what was what has it been like um since then and since uh, making that for her and were you able to kind of have a, I guess like a direct response from like the people that work with her as far as her reaction to the caller or what was it like after you were able to make it and send it off to her?
1: That was such an incredible opportunity. Um, I, you know, I always said that I wouldn't make a like lace commission for, for anyone because as someone who's come out of a uh, costuming background, I have a lot of experience doing custom work and it's so time consuming um, and it wasn't something that I wanted to return to after kind of leaning into academia and history a little bit. Um, But of course, this was an opportunity that I absolutely couldn't turn down. It was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And if I never make any lace again, that's probably fine because I don't think I can top this experience. But um, it was really incredible to, to be able to make something that is a piece of history and to honor such an important figure as Justice Ginsburg. Um, So I, you know, I dedicated many hours to it, and it was really an honor to pass it off to her. And yes, I did, I received a little note through um, email through Columbia Law School, who commissioned the collar. And essentially, um, she said that she was going to wear it on her first week back to court in February 2019. So unfortunately we don't have a photo of her wearing it because they don't allow photography in the supreme right. court um but that's okay i it's it's enough for me to know that she owned it and she wore it and that is something that i will always treasure knowing um so may her memory be a
0: blessing yes, um it's it's so amazing and i think it's um it's it's something that's it's it's historical but it's also on a on a personal level with everything that's happened this year um and to have someone like that that we've lost. I, I can't imagine what it's like to be part of um, that history in some way. Um, have there been other people that have now been trying to commission you or have there been like things like that happen- happening more since that has happened or is that kind of more at a distance?
1: Well I admit I do get a lot of comments and questions on social media from people asking if I sell my lace and and the answer is no. And the reason is that I just don't have time. I, I, you know, the, that's the one thing I lament is that I, I, as much as I love all of my work in history outside of the museum, I, I, um, lecture frequently. I gave a lecture yesterday for the association of dress historians. So I also teach Bob and Lace classes I'm teaching this weekend. So it's really become a seven day a week endeavor, um, as to, to be sort of a virtual lace person. I think I'm surprised how busy I've remained during this pandemic right. year, but now we have more access and opportunity to, to connect with each other. So that's, I guess, the, the one silver lining of, you know, obviously horrible, right? stressful year. But um, yeah, uh, Oh my gosh, now I've lost my train of thought. I apologize.
0: Oh no, you're good. Um, And I wanted to, and I guess I can segue into um, your film pick for this uh, episode because um, when I think about, again, the work that you've shared, both um, whether it's in photos or talking about, um, in your instance, mostly Bob and Lace, um, you're, you're able to show us a glimpse of just how at least to me, it it's looks so complex, but also this looks so incredible over processed. Because you're working with a pillow, you're working with—I guess—are they bobbins, like the lawn wooden yes. um, pieces, and the, mm-hmm. there's the multiple threads, and, and of course, the, you're 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 living like a painting. You have such an incredible sense of fashion as you're working. And so the the <laughs> film that you picked, like it, it just it, it made perfect sense to me. Um, but you chose to talk about um, the Alice um, rendition from 1988 by Jans Frank and it's been years since I've seen it. I think I'd only seen parts of it. So I was revisiting it the other night. Um, And there were parts of it that were funnier than I remembered and also parts of it that were even scarier than I remembered. And I love that mixture. So could you talk um, about why you're drawn to that film and maybe um, just different aspects of it that kind of resonate with you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, The, you know, the original Lewis Carroll's, his book Alice's Adventures in Wonderland has always been a favorite of mine as well. And there's, and there's something very dark and unsettling about it that isn't quite captured. As much as I love the Disney animated version, it's not quite captured in in right. al- the Alice in Wonderland that we grew up with. Um, it's it's there's something much more sinister about it, and I and I really feel that Jan Schenkmaier managed to capture that in his version of Alice. Just the he captured the mood so spectacularly, and and I love his use of you know, this sort of analog method of stop motion using taxidermied animals. And, you know, when Alice shrinks down, she's this Victorian doll, which, you know, I also collected dolls for many years. So that is another interest of mine that overlaps here. And I just aesthetically, I really have connected with it in a strong way. I think I first saw it probably around 15 years ago, maybe an ex of mine showed it to me. I can't even remember because it's just been one of my favorite things for a long time. But um, I check cinema from that time period and and earlier, like sixties Czech movies as well. They they just have this incredibly strange magic to them, and it's it's just always a favorite uh, genre for me. So I really feel like he he has such an interesting and specific universe that. Um, he's able to capture that I just I really connect with
0: And the, the fact that there is such a handmade quality who it's like you're saying films that are from those eras they're automatically more handmade anyway but then right. because he chose processes like stop motion and the way that it's integrated and the choices that he made are so unusual um so I, f- I feel like it, it's something that's so it's so poignant and it, it really works well for the story because, like you say, the story is a lot darker and stranger than most kid movies, let alone um, like the Disney version, which I also love too. But um, there's something about the darkness that's that's really important and, and seeing a, a, a child actor that's not being treated in a way that's really cutesy, but like... Kids in real life have temper tantrums or they have problems they go through and I I understand it makes people uncomfortable but also like that's just how it is and we all have memories that aren't the best from childhood even if you have amazing childhoods so it's I think it's so interesting to have that kind of introspection and you don't see that quite as much or it's harder to find maybe Um, but I really enjoyed seeing it again so it was really cool.
1: I um, Yeah, absolutely. I watched it recently as well, which is why it first popped into my mind. And and one of the things I couldn't help but notice when I sent you my two selections for this was that they're both works of art by men. And, and I tend to just naturally be more drawn to works of art by women, um, just because of my aesthetic that it tends to resonate with me more. But what I realize is the reasons that I'm so drawn to these two male creatives and artists is that um, they they depict women in such a different way. There There's no, you know, male gaze in their work. You know, um is depicting Alice as a complicated, as you say, like young girl that has temper tantrums or that is naughty sometimes, but not in this like coquettish way that often little girls are depicted. That sort of almost can be a little creepy in Hollywood media sometimes where girls have to be sugar and spice all the time Um, or like a straight up brat. Whereas in her case, She's just this strange, curious little girl. And she reminds me more of what I was like as a little girl. I mean, I played with bugs in the dirt. I right. I wasn't a girly girl. I would have chased this rabbit through the woods it, precisely the way that she did. And, you know, she isn't always nice. And little kids aren't always nice. And then, you know, they're complex human beings. Um, so I really liked the, the humanity that he gives her in, in his depiction of the Alice story. And then... Same goes for Yinka Shonabade's work, where when he depicts women, you know, he depicts the the sort of the power that white women possess in these, like in colonialism as well. And this is sort of, rather than these wilting violets that they're depicted as, that women are often depicted as in, or sex objects in, you know, you know, historic paintings of the Renaissance or whatever, um, they're... He, or of the Rococo period in particular, I should say. This is what his his is worked on based on. You know, he's he depicts the you know female participation in in evil and violence also. And so it it again, it's it's it is more real. It's more whole in in his in his approach. So I think that that's really powerful to depict women as complicated complete human beings who have all different roles and aspects in society throughout history and that's what's important to me i think and that's what i love about both of these artists
0: right and in the original um swing image the Fragonard image i think there are two Gentlemen, there in the picture on either yeah. side, and um, with Yinka's work, he's worked with multiple figures before, so it was of course a very deliberate choice he made to remove them. And I think that was really important too, and so I, I like that you mentioned that the the gazes they're they're being treated in a way that you don't often see with male artists, and so it makes a difference with how the work is perceived and with how it's presented. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And with with your childhood and with um, living in such two um, uniquely, or at least seemingly uniquely different worlds, um, I'm really fascinated with the way that you've like, kind of like melded these different um, sources and kind of have like really made them part of your visual image and, and, your history and of course they would be um and I grew up next to Disneyland California oh, wow. but I've lived mostly now in East Tennessee and I live just an hour east of Dollywood which I oh, saw love. that you went there which is so <laughs> cool um and so it's cool to think about like the kind of, like, unique or strange parts of childhood that that sticks out. And it can be just, like, a really weird, like, maybe, like, a building you went to one time or, like, a movie that you saw a hundred times. Um, but do you think there are things that you experienced, maybe a place that you went to or maybe something that you saw, like, visual in person that has really affected you that really um, – It's something that you revisit from your childhood.
1: Wow, that's such a good question. Um, You know, I sometimes feel like I had all of these experiences and was able to live internationally as a child, and I didn't necessarily appreciate it as much as I should have at the time because to me it just seemed like normal life, and it wasn't perhaps as, you know, fascinating. But But I did... I did. I do have. um, I was shaped by them, these experiences and and places that I visited, and I do often look back at that and draw upon it now. So now I can appreciate like how important and special these experiences that I had as a child were. Um, Definitely, I I remember um, we when we lived in Japan when I was really young. My mom was a university professor teaching Japanese and. Um, She would be responsible for taking graduate students abroad for international programs. She was sort of the supervisor um, for for these sort of semester-long programs and this sort of thing, or sometimes shorter, but for various programs of graduate students studying Japanese abroad. And um, when I was four, we lived in this really small town in rural Japan. It's totally farmland countryside called Gujo-hachiman and um it's really all like rice patties and um little um thatched roof h- houses and that's sort of, not that wow. but you know like little right. traditional japanese homes and that sort of thing um and we lived actually in a buddhist temple um so wow. that i remember specifically having to pray with the monks before dinner for like an or they would chant for like what felt like hours as a four-year-old, but which now obviously I recognize is probably only a few minutes, um, but I was very impatient and wanted to eat because I was four. (laughs) Um, But I also remember the grandmother because the, um, the Buddhist temple was uh, run by a family that, you know, basically cooked food and cared for the grounds and that sort of thing, took care of the facilities. And the grandmother, this elderly grandmother who um, lived with them, it was a multi-generational household as is traditional and often the case in Japan. Um, She would get up at dawn and ring this big bell to wake everyone up, to tell the monks and also the surrounding community, it's time to get up. And I remember getting up with her in the morning sometimes because I wanted to ring the bell and I was only four. So I'm sure I didn't have the strength and she probably helped me, but I remember (laughs) she allowed me to get up with her at like five in the morning once and ring the bell to like wake the community. And that that experience has always resonated with me. There's so many little memories. My sister is actually sort of our memory keeper in our family. She has a better memory than me and my mom. So she'll be like, oh, I remember all these details and oh, cool. remind us of things. But um, yeah, that experience was, was really formative for me. Um, I think the ability to grow up in in multiple different cultures, not just Japanese culture versus American culture, but also within the U S to look to, you know, the, the Amish and Mennonite community are their own isolated and separate or distinct culture from maybe the more mainstream U S. So I, I sort of have always straddled multiple worlds in my life and I still, and I feel like that's why I've been able to navigate perhaps this, straddling this very modern um, world of fashion and social media and technology and the digital sphere while simultaneously encompassing this historical um, lace making and textile history kind of sphere, which in many cases, the lace community is totally offline. And, you know, on my travels, many people don't have the internet or aren't interested in social media. And that's why it can be kind of difficult to find to connect with the community. But it really does feel like I bridge these two totally different worlds, but to me, they overlap. You know, I, I find where they overlap and, and that's where I sort of exist.
0: (laughs) And I think, um, and again, just from revisiting, um, different interviews I found with you, um, you've, you've traveled extensively too. And I do feel like, even though of course living in different places, the time that, Amount of time that you spend somewhere is hugely important. But when I when I find myself traveling somewhere that's diff- very different from what I'm used to, even if it's just for like a month or for two weeks, um, it just punctuates your time and it really stands out because it's so unique from other experiences. Um, and I know, and I know we're probably getting close. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I, I would love to ask you. I guess of the many countries you went to study with different lace makers and different lace schools and um, kind of traversing multiple languages too, Um, what are some places that, and this might be a terrible question, that that might stand out. Do you have um, a particular place that you would like to revisit or have you revisited some of these places? Um, Or is there a place that you haven't been that you're dying to go to study lace?
1: Absolutely. Oh my gosh. So many of both, both of the, both places I've been and would like to go. Um, yeah, I, I was very lucky to get a grant in 2015 to, to fund my travel for four months. Otherwise I never could have done something like that on my own. So that was really an incredible experience and it totally transformed my life and shaped my career. So I'm so grateful that I had that opportunity. Um, I, since my travels, when I went to 14 different countries, I studied in seven of them. So some of them were just sort of stopovers or didn't have schools specifically that I was studying at, but I was just visiting. But I traveled basically from Croatia to Belgium and England. So from East to West, um, Northwest. And I, I've been back since to Belgium to Bruges for a Congress of the world lace Congress in in Bruges in 2018. Now, my gosh, it was two years ago already. Um, so I went back there again to take more classes, which was fabulous. And then I also returned to Le puy en velay in France, which is a medieval village, um, where they've been making lace for five centuries. It's, it's phenomenal. It's one of my favorite places in the world. They have great food. Um, And great lace and great people. Um, So I've been back there. Another place that I'd like to go back to, again, that's been a while, I've been twice, um, again, for lace, but I haven't been since my trip in 2015, is to Burano Island off of Venice in Italy. It's just such a special and magical place. Um, It's been a lace-making community um, for, again, centuries. And it's, it's just spectacularly colorful and beautiful. And I have studied there as well and I would love to go back and reconnect with my teacher and with at the museum take take another visit and another tour so hopefully that'll be safe to do again in the future and then um, particularly Eastern Europe is is a part of the world that I really enjoy exploring and spending time in so I've been to Slovenia several times to study lace it was the first place I learned and I've also been to Croatia to study lace but um, I, I really dream of traveling to Hungary, they have. I've visited for a day trip, but I haven't really spent much time there. Um, There's a small community, Hollish, that does needle lace that I'd love to learn, Um, and many other countries. But um, there's a lace conference again next year that's in Estonia, and it's in August. And I'm like, you know, unlikely, but I it would be a dream come true if I were able to travel by then. So fingers crossed. And if not. I'll go again in the future. But th- in addition to Europe, I mean, lace is really global. And there's a lace museum in Puerto Rico. There are lace makers in Brazil. There are lace makers in Sri Lanka and in China. I mean, so I, those are my bucket list for lace research is endless.
0: <laughs> yes, which is, I think it's so exciting um, because like, and again, for what I've learned from what you've shared um, there's, there's so many different types of lace and different types of fibers. And then to learn that these techniques are made with so many different types of mediums. So it's just, it seems so endless because there's there's such a long history with it. And it's such a wide scope of approaches, which is so cool. Yeah. Um, when I briefly lived in Iceland, I don't know if they have, I'm sure there's like a lace specialty there, but there's one um, textile museum it's in Blondos in uh, northwestern Iceland that I think you would love because they have an artist residency but you can also go there's a museum within it and it's very small and it used to be a women's school and it feels very it's super spooky in the best way (laughs) Um, and they mostly specialize in in embroidery and they have this really um, expansive tapestry that you can pay to add on to so I added like my really loose and horrible stitches too but it was so cool um but because i I know with iceland they have a lot of um very unique kind of specialty museums they have like a witchcraft museum they have a school for elves that are there um wow but i think you would enjoy that museum for sure and i'm sure i don't i don't know for that of it um for certain but i'm sure that there's some kind of lace community there too um
1: i'm not sure about the lace community there i'm there must be but um i did have my friend isa rodriguez from the textile art center did the residency there so i'm familiar with it and it's Total bucket list item for sure. I, I'm that's so cool that you got to embroider. Yes, yes. There,
0: <laughs> oh, cool. Well, I have I have this one. Um, I guess question left, and it's kind of silly, but there's there's lots of really incredible of uh, portraits of you, and I I just I super adore it, um your your fashion your fashion sense and also the the presentation of it. And there's a picture I think taken by Rose Callahan who I found her work also through the Muses Escape, yeah. who does really cool um, portraiture. There's a picture where you're lying on the red carpet and it's like this overhead of <laughs> you, but I was wondering um, like what events that you're at and also what was the response because it looks like people are just walking by which just adds to it too, but it's such a cool picture. Um, so what's the circumstance surrounding that image?
1: oh yeah oh i love rose she's such a lovely person and a dear friend and a fantastic photographer that was such a fun impromptu shoot so that was at the national arts club in new york city which has a um, fashion speaker series Um, and so obviously this was pre-pandemic now they're doing them virtually um, so anyone can watch them online from anywhere but they used to be in person and they would have these really incredible speakers like every month on different topics i've had several friends do them they're really cool. So this one was a latex designer. Um, she's known as the Baroness. She has a latex shop in New York City. And so yeah. I had—I was coming from work, so obviously I can't wear like latex to work. So I—I I wore this pink, yes. you know, pussy bro- bow silk dress that was work appropriate. And then when I got to the event, I put on a pink latex hood and and uh, creepy aha. Um, it's so cool. Pink choker, which you know, it goes to show that even when you work in an industry that, you know, I I can look like myself, but I have to be, I have to look professional, of course. Um, But I, but I just adding a couple accessories can really change your whole aesthetic. So um, Rose just had this vision. It was all Rose. She said, go lay." We were on the balcony, the mezzanine overlooking the staircase, and we were looking down and Rose just said, go lay down on the stairs after the lecture. And I was like, Okay, so I went down, and I lay down on the stairs, and um, she, she filmed me, and she took a photo, and I had no idea what it was going to look like, but wow, yeah, that did, it turned out amazing. I, I really love that shot, and people were leaving the lecture, so there's just people oh, walking wow. by me down the stairs.
0: That's so cool, <laughs> and it, it, it's so it's like, yeah, so, and that makes step you're...
1: out of your way, you know? I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt.
0: Oh no, you're good. The, I just I love the sensibility of I guess people just kind of feeling like it's it's natural almost, and I think it, it's it's a New York moment. But it also just adds to the idea of like maybe it was staged, like maybe they were even staged, or there's there's more mystery around it. So <laughs> I really loved it.
1: Thank you. Yeah, Rose is so talented. I hope we get to hang out and work together again in the future. Fingers crossed. Yes. Good times are
0: coming. Yes. Well, I've I've loved getting to know your work and. And what I love about this podcast is I interview people who often have been interviewed um, multiple times, but I pick people like you who always have so many things that is new information that I feel like is really valuable to a lot of people. So I'm really thankful for your time, um, and also if you ever visit Dollywood again, I'm so close and I love it there too. So I would love if I could join you um, because I feel like there's this – there's just such a, a love for um, kind of more fanciful or fanfare and fashion um, in the community that I'm around to. And so it's fun to see that in other pockets and other uh, places in the art world. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Liz,
1: so much for asking me. It was my pleasure. I'm so glad that we got to talk and get to know each other a little bit. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more um, of your podcast i i just i love this concept so much it really resonated with me thinking about talking with creatives about their favorite works of art so
0: right and, really and again your picks were were so perfect and i feel like it's, it introduces a lot of work to people but also adds more context um to the people i interview especially with yours so thank you for those choices
1: thank you so much